came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 16th of November 2018. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. Today we present episode 3 in our Astro Tour series, featuring interviews I did on a 2,500 kilometre Astro Tour of Australia's finest eastern state radio and optical observatories. Today's episode is from our third stop. A couple of more hours up almost to the Queensland border, to Narrabri, to speak with Dr Jamie Stevens, who's the CSIRO Senior Systems Scientist at the unique ATCA, the Australian Telescope Compact Array, an array of six 22-metre radio dishes mounted on railway tracks doing amazing research. Then, on the return journey, we called in at Parks again and caught up with John Sarkissian, the operations scientist at Parks, who gave us another great interview. Then it's down through Canberra and out to Tidbinbilla to speak with Glenn Nagel at the NASA CSIRO Deep Space Network site with its 70 metre and 43 metre dishes that talk daily to almost every spacecraft in our solar system and beyond. Our tour finished at the Mount Stromlo Observatory where we were treated to a truly eye-opening tour of the observatory and astrophysics research labs by Dr Brad Tucker from the Australian National University and we were astonished to be shown the facilities that rigorously test satellites from shoebox-sized CubeSats up to huge 3-metre by 3-metre satellites. After this series, we'll be talking with one of his PhD students who's putting ultraviolet telescopes up above the stratosphere in balloons. Astonishing work. So you're in for an excellent series of episodes... Please stay tuned and tell your friends. And as usual in each episode, we cross over to Adelaide in Australia to speak with Dr Ian Musgrave, who is a University Toxicology and Pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on our astronomical tangent. And we finish up with some Astrophys News highlights, featuring the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So here's our interview with Dr Jamie Stevens at the ACTA. Hello Jamie. 
Hello, how's it going? Very good, thanks, Jamie. And it's such a pleasure to be here at Narrabri in New South Wales, Australia, at the famous CSIRO ACTA, at the Paul Wild Observatory, not too far from the Queensland border. And we're very pleased to be speaking with Dr. Jamie Stevens, who is a senior systems scientist for the Australian Telescope Compact Array. And this radio telescope has just celebrated its 30th birthday. Now, before we talk about your work here, let's have a look at what you have here. Now, it doesn't seem too compact to me, Jamie. Your array footprint is six kilometres in diameter on an east-west railway track. You've got one dish three kilometres away, and then you've got three kilometres of track here. And you can also push one dish 200 metres north, and that's an interesting configuration if you need to, which makes it a pretty large array. Could you describe the instruments and dishes you have here at the ATCA and just paint that picture for us? Sure thing, Brendan. Well, first I'd like to thank you for coming along and interviewing me about this wonderful instrument we have here. It may look large, and of course, by human scale, pretty large, but by the standards of radio interferometry, which can get baselines up to thousands of kilometres, it's actually a pretty small array size that we have here. The ATCA is made up of six antennas. Now, each of them is 22 metres in diameter, and each has roughly identical systems inside it. Now, they were built at slightly different times back in 1988, so they're not all perfectly identical, but it's close enough. Five of the antennas can be moved along a three-kilometre east-west rail track, as you were talking about. This rail track just happens to be the widest gauge railway track in Australia as well. It's uh, quite an impressive sight, and it's built so perfectly flat that it doesn't even follow the curvature of the Earth. And I'll get to why that is in a little while. There's also the 214-metre track that joins that three-kilometre track in the middle. The sixth antenna is located three kilometres to the west of the western end of the track, and it's fixed in position, it doesn't move along a track. Each antenna is fully steerable to any point in the sky higher than about 12 degrees in elevation. And it has what we call a cassegrain design, which means we have two reflection surfaces, a main parabolic reflector and a secondary hyperbolic reflector. We do this for a few reasons, but primarily it's because it gives us the chance to have a big focus room where we have easy access to it and allows us to put three large receivers which are very sensitive inside and use them simultaneously. These receivers allow us to look at a large range of wavelengths from about 30 centimeters all the way down to three millimeters or if you prefer to talk in frequency that's about from one gigahertz all the way up to 100 gigahertz. We're a very flexible instrument in that regard. All of our receivers are cryogenically cooled with helium to get them down to temperatures of about 20 Kelvin, 20 degrees above absolute zero. And this just is to minimize the amount of thermal noise that is generated by the system. And that would interfere with uh, our attempts to detect the most faint signals that uh, most people just can't understand exactly how faint these things are. These receivers are placed on a rotating platform, which can be moved while we observe the sky. And so that allows us to quickly change frequencies and look at the same object in multiple different bands, and that gives us a better picture of what's happening in these sources. After the very faint signals that we receive are amplified by the receivers, they get digitized and sent back to the control building over optical fiber cables. And another fun fact, we were the first 
institution in Australia at this telescope using optical fibre in Australia back in 1988. We were the very first installation. All the data gets streamed back into a supercomputer called a correlator, which uh, we have one that's called CAB, the Compact Array Broadband Backend. And this looks for the similarities between all the signals coming through each antennas and writes everything out to disk. That's kind of the <laughs> short version of what we do here. Fantastic. So the ATCA is all about interferometry, I believe. Could you paint a brief picture of what interferometry is, please? A brief picture is hard to do, but I'll give it a shot. Um, <laughs> so interferometry is the use of multiple receiving elements to look for correlation. So if you look at the same source from two different points on the ground through two different antennas, you can take the signals that must be coming from the same source and everything that isn't correlated between the two antennas is likely to be noise. The stuff that correlates is what's actually there on the sky. Now, the way it works in a little bit more of a technical sense is like the Young's double slit experiment in quantum mechanics. So you have these photons coming down, basically waves, and it produces an interference pattern after it goes through two slits. Now, each two antennas that we have acts as a double slit experiment. So we have 15 simultaneous uh, double slit experiments going on. And instead of having a screen, we basically measure the interference pattern as a voltage electronically. Yeah. That's basically what happens. We put all our antennas on an east-west array, and as, that, as the Earth rotates, that east-west array changes the orientation of the double slits with regards to the source. And so over about 12-hour time period, you get a lot of information about what's happening on the sky, depending on the shape of the array. So the array configuration, whether or not the antennas are close together or far apart, it also moves the interference pattern that you would see on a screen. So with largely separated slits, you get a much finer yeah. interference pattern, and so you get higher resolution. As you move them closer together, you get broader resolution or more sensitivity to the, the stuff on the sky that's big. Yep. Of course, because we only have six antennas, we're not sensitive to all of the scales on the sky at the same time. So a lot of, every three to four weeks... We move the antennas around on the track, make them closer together or further apart. And some projects will use multiple configurations to get a much better picture of the entire sky. Some projects don't care. Some projects only want a particular scale. And so they only use one configuration and others want different configurations. So reconfigure regularly just to make sure that we have as broad a science output as possible. Fantastic, Jamie. So... Could you highlight some of that research that's being conducted here? What are some of the radio astronomers working on? I was over at your visitor's centre and I saw that you have over 400 researchers from over 130 institutions throughout the world using your array each year. So I, we can't go through all of them, obviously. <laughs> but would you like to narrow down and talk about a particular bit of research that's happening at the moment? Yeah. That sounds like a good idea. I'll just highlight a few that I think are quite exciting, at least personally. Um, so these are just my cherry-picked things out of the 100 or so projects that we get every year yeah. applying for time on this telescope. I'll just choose just a few. One of the interesting ones is that we're still looking at the evolution of supernova 1987A. Yeah. So this is a supernova that occurred in the Large Magellanic Cloud 
and is basically the closest supernova that's happened while we've had modern technology available to look at it. Now, this means that we are in a prime position in the Southern Hemisphere here and as a radio interferometer to look at that as it changes and evolves over time. And we've been doing that for the past 25, 26 years. So as it continues to evolve, we've been able to learn about how supernova remnants form, what forms out of the supernova, how the gas expands and shocks form as it hits other gas, and also how magnetic fields arise in the supernova remnants. So that's continuing to provide really good results even now, 30 years after it's happened. We're also very good here at the ATCA at looking at magnetic fields present in our own galaxy. I'm sure you've talked to Jane Kazmarek about this kind of thing, and she is part of a big team that's working on that kind of project to study the magnetic fields by looking at very distant quasars. So these things are point-like sources that act like torchlights that shine through the material in our galaxy and all the material between them and us. Looking at the polarization of that signal, which the compact array is exquisitely good at, allows us to determine the magnetic fields that it must have passed through on the way to get here. By looking at frequency, the polarization changes, we get a good idea of something called rotation measure, which tells you about the magnetic fields. With our combination of wide bandwidths and just exquisite calibratability, we have one of the best telescopes for studying this kind of thing in the world, and we, we have a lot of people wanting to do this. We also do some unconventional experiments here. One of the very large projects that we have, led by a person called Sherry Breen of University of Sydney, is using the array as six individual antennas. Doesn't care about the interferometry aspect yeah. of it. They want to do a large survey of all the dense regions of gas in our galaxy, the Milky Way. And this is going to inform us about star formation, massive star formation. They look at spectral lines and maser emission throughout the galaxy. And they're going to use this data long time into the future. This is why we, we call this kind of project a legacy project. It's something that we think that the community will make use of for a long time to come. Back closer to what I do, we're using the same wide bandwidths and calibratability of the telescope to look at different aspects of the gas within our galaxy, not just the magnetic fields. So you expect to see these quasars, very distant sources, very quite slowly and in a very predictable manner. You know, yeah. they'll go up or they'll go down and so on. But occasionally you'll see one that varies very quickly or has a really big spectral change. As you look at it, it'll develop kinks and change the slope of its continuum emission um, over the course of days to weeks. Now, we know that this must be caused by refraction as the light from that quasar is coming through ionized gas, yeah. most likely in our galaxy. And we've been studying two particular aspects of that change. There are two phenomena called extreme scattering events and intraday variability. Now, we've done a bit of study in that in the past with other radio telescopes, but the ATCA, when it became a wideband instrument back in 2009, we started looking at these things in much more detail, and we've been able to learn a lot more about what's causing this kind of stuff. And it looks to be that there's an association with nearby hot stars. So there's this gas orbiting nearby hot stars that is causing this, but we still can't see it. We still don't know exactly what it is. And it's a big mystery that we're going to keep attacking here. A team that I'm a part of is doing this kind of research. And I, I find it incredibly exciting.
it's not just us that look for things that change on short timescales either. So the compact array is used extensively by people who wait for triggers from other telescopes like gamma ray observatories or X-ray observatories um, or even optical observatories and even recently the gravitational wave observatory. Once they see objects that change in a very specific way or you find a new source, a lot of people come here and say, can we have some time? And we very quickly grant it and they get on source really quickly and have a look at what the radio properties of these new sources are. So that's a big area that we're exploiting uh, with this telescope as well. Fantastic. Now, a couple of things. You mentioned that you went wideband in 2009. One of our listeners got in touch. This is an amateur who's working building an eight-metre amateur scope. And he was asking what changes has happened to the ATCA, and that might be a good example. So what technology changes in general has happened to ATCA since it was originally built? So um, that's a really good question. Back when it was formed in the mid-80s to late 80s, it was by far the most technologically advanced radio telescope that had ever been built because we had started planning it when we had modern computers and modern optical fiber and stuff like that. So it already began as a very technologically advanced telescope. And we've tried to keep it that way throughout its entire life. So when it started, it had a certain suite of receivers, which we immediately added to with the invention of the millimeter receivers, which allowed us to do much higher frequency radio astronomy than other people had been doing at that time. Then in 2009, we changed out our original correlator, which was state-of-the-art but gets old, of course, with a brand new one based on something called field programmable gate arrays or FPGAs, which allowed us to look at much more bandwidth at the same time. So we went from looking at only 256 megahertz of bandwidth simultaneously to 4 gigahertz of bandwidth, so a factor of 16. And that allowed us to open up new ways of looking at sources and allowed us to do the same kinds of things that we were doing a lot faster than before. Then we had to upgrade our receivers to cope with that new ingest bandwidth. So we upgraded our centimeter receiver fleet by increasing their bandwidth by factors of four as well. And that has been an extreme success. We've been able to get broader bandwidth receivers and much more sensitive receivers at the same time. And we're going to do it again because, of course, we can't sit here and rest. It wouldn't be a telescope if we did that. So hopefully the next thing that we'll do is build a new correlator. So the current correlator works just fine, but it's getting a little bit unreliable. It's more than 10 years old now. And there's better technology now. Instead of using bespoke hardware, which is really hard to replace and you can't really make it again, we're going to shift towards using off-the-shelf PCs and very fast graphics cards. So not only will we have a more flexible correlator that's easier to make new modes for, but we'll also be able to just say, if it breaks, go and buy a new PC. It doesn't really make any difference to us, whether it's a faster PC or whatever. So that's the future plan in the next couple of years. Very good. And look, I've got some more questions and I will get on them. But another thing you mentioned that I thought was really interesting and that you were talking about legacy projects a lot of these instruments, and especially the new generation of instruments, 
are pulling down petabytes of data and the scientists are interrogating that data with AI and a lot is going to get lost. It's not going to be archived. And so I was particularly interested to hear that you're doing legacy projects, which basically builds an archive. So that's really awesome. Now, I presume that most of your researchers work remotely on the projects. How do you deliver their data sets to them so they can do their sciencing on their data? Right. So that was a really good question, Brendan. The compact array doesn't actually produce all that much data. For a typical observation, we maybe produce tens of gigabytes of data every day. Now, that's, of course, not the raw data. The raw data is much higher, but after it goes through the correlator. The stuff that the scientists are interested in isn't that much data. <clears throat> However, things like that legacy project actually produce hundreds of gigabytes of data a day. But that's still quite manageable. So we actually don't delete any data from our telescope. We use just a big data store down in our headquarters at Marsfield. We copy all the data there as soon as it's done and we keep it there forever. So whenever researcher wants to come and get their own data, they go to this website called the Australia Telescope Online Archive, and they can grab their data over the network. So we have an 18-month proprietary period on that data. That means the people who propose to do the project get 18 months of exclusive access to the data from the telescope. But after that, it's open to any researcher throughout the world. They can go and get the data and do whatever they want with it. In a way, we're a quite different instrument to that from ASCAP, which makes the data publicly available immediately, yep. but also it doesn't have like the ability to store all of the petabytes of data that it generates. Yep. That sounds great. Now, you're the ATCA Senior Systems Scientist. Can you tell us about your role, the teams you work with, and what your working week looks like these days? So the system scientist is responsible for making sure that the telescope is capable of doing the science that we say it should be able to do. And a lot of that is looking for problems with the, the data that's coming from the telescope. I do that in several ways. I keep an eye on the reports coming from the observers who are using the telescope. I have my own data projects, so I look at the data that I'm taking and we have a, a, a number of staff in Sydney who look for the same kinds of things and I collaborate with them to, to look for these issues which might be cropping up. Then I try to figure out what's going on, what, what systems are probably affected, and then I talk with our engineering teams here on site and say, look, I reckon it's this problem. They go and investigate and I help them run experiments to prove or disprove my uh, hypothesis and then we fix the problem and we make sure it's fixed. But that doesn't actually take up a lot of my time because it's a very mature instrument and we don't get very many breakages. We get subtle problems occasionally, but for the most part, it's fairly simple. So a lot of the other part of being a system scientist is helping people make the most of their data. So I try to write tools in software and I write guides and I talk to people about how to do their data reduction or prepare for their observations the best way, that kind of thing. I'm really here to help people exploit the telescope to its fullest potential. Fantastic. Now, you've worked on these upgrades in the past. If a sudden bucket of funding <laughs> became available... What would you like to see here at the Paul Wilde Observatory in the next five to ten years? What's on your wish list? 
My biggest is, of course, a new correlator, the new GPU correlator that I was talking about before. We would really like to replace that as soon as possible. That will allow us to get new different types of science out of the telescope, might make us even broader bandwidth than we have before, and it would allow us to have something that is flexible going into the future. But if we had more money than that, I think the next thing on our list is to look for a new receiver uh, that works at very high frequencies, which are similar to what we have over at ASCAP. So of course, over at ASCAP, they have these things called phase array feeds, which allow them to look at very wide patches of sky at the same time. Whereas we all have single pixel feeds here, which are very narrow, a very like small patch of sky. If we could build a path that works at frequencies above 20 gigahertz, then we could do surveys of the sky and the galaxy at these, looking for different waterline transitions or even higher frequencies. We can look for CO at high redshift over broad ranges of the sky very quickly and much more sensitively if we make them cryogenically cooled. So I know that the technologies group that we have in Marsfield, whose job is to think about new technologies that we could lead the world in, would certainly want to do this. They've told me that they, they're looking for science that they could do with such an instrument. They'd love to build one. So if we had the money, we would definitely do something like that and put them on the compact array. Excellent. Now, the mic's all yours, Jamie, and you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in funding, in education, in equity, in outreach, our quest for knowledge. The mic's all yours. Um, <laughs> not much of a rant, I'm afraid. Just come use the compact array if you've got an interesting science proposal. We're here for you guys. And it's a resource available to everybody. And I'd love to see everybody come and use the telescope. And it's a stunning location you've got here. It's a beautiful part of Australia. It really is. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Jamie Stevens. It's been a privilege to come to Narrabri to the ATCA to speak with you and to hear about the great science happening here. Thanks for coming, Brendan. Okay, let's cross to Adelaide now to speak with Dr. Ian Musgrave, who's back home from Brisbane. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Well, what's not up in the evening sky is Venus. Venus has gone behind the sun and is now rising in the early morning skies. In fact, you can see it on the 15th when this podcast will come out and you'll see it very close to the bright star speaker in Virgo. So that means in the evening sky, we no longer have a all five chloride planets. Jupiter is very low to the horizon, so if you're looking 30 minutes after sunset, Jupiter will be barely visible in the twilight glow, and you'll need to be somewhere with a very flat horizon, like the desert or the ocean, to really see it. Yep. And then Mercury is very close to the bright star Antares. In fact, it had me confused for a little while because I hadn't been watching the sky for a while, and I knew that Mercury was not far from Jupiter. But I mistook Antares for Jupiter, and uh, Mercury and Antares at the moment are making a very nice pair in the early twilight sky. So again, if you're looking uh, half an hour after sunset, you can see Antares and Mercury 
reasonably well. As it gets darker, they become far more obvious, but the pair are getting lower, so you'll need to have a relatively clear west horizon to see them. Get it while you can. Get it while you can. In fact, this will be the last week you'll be able to see Jupiter by the end of the week. Again, these podcasts come out every two weeks, so this is halfway between our podcast cycles. But by the end of the week, Jupiter will no longer be visible and will be lost in the twilight. Well, it's been very good having it there for the last six months. It's been nice and bright. It's been very bright. It's been gracing our skies and making the western horizon very nice over the past month or so. Saturn's still visible and remain visible for several weeks now. Unfortunately, it's, as it gets lower to the horizon, the turbulence in the atmosphere means that uh, it's not a very good telescopic object. You can still see the rings quite nicely at a medium power, but the turbulence will mean that you will be able to see very little detail and the rings will flutter about in the telescope's field of view. So it'll be nice to see, but it won't be a good astrophotography target. Now, also on the 16th, the waxing moon is very close to Mars. Mars is dimming rapidly. It is now nowhere near as obvious as it was earlier on, but you can still see it as being relatively bright. And on the 16th, the moon is next, because the moon is next to it, it now allows you to work out where Mars is in the sky so that it'll be quite easy to find when the moon moves away. Mercury is coming back towards uh, Antares. It's, it's, well, it's close to Antares, but it'll move away uh, for a little while and then start coming back, and then it will be closest to Antares again on the 21st. So keep watching Mercury and Antares, and uh, watching their dance will be quite nice. Very good. We mentioned the Bepi Colombo mission in our last episode while you were away at your mum's memorial service. We talked about Bepi Colombo and what an exciting mission that is. But don't forget the Parker Solar Probe. Parker Solar Probe just came closer to the sun than any other probe that we've ever sent to the sun. And it will continue to loop around the sun and getting closer and closer as we make more and more observations of the near-solar environment. Well, the Parker Solar Probe is going to come very close to a newly discovered comet. Don Machholz has discovered a a new comet visually. It's uh, currently around about magnitude 9.4. It doesn't have an official uh, name at the moment, but it rejoices in the number of TCP J122806-021143. (laughs) <laughs> it will eventually it will eventually become 2018 or C slash 2018, some other numbers, and then brackets either Machholz or Machholz and the two Japanese observers who found it. It's his 12th comet. It's currently relatively low in the morning twilight sky in Virgo. In fact, it's quite close to the second brightest star in Virgo's gamma virginity. So that's right in the middle of Virgo. So. If you're out in the morning twilight, you'll see Venus underneath the speaker. And then if you hop up speaker one, two stars, that's uh, the uh, gamma virginis or Porima. And the comet is within uh, binocular distance of Porima. So that'll be quite interesting to have a look at. Its magnitude is about 9.4, so you'll need a reasonable kit to see it. But its projected perihelion is somewhere around about December the 4th. It'd be very interesting to see how this comet evolves. And, of course, one of the things that's going to happen 
is it will come very close to the Parker Solar Probe as Harvest Orbit. Does it have a tail at the moment? No, it's just a fuzzy blob, but I'll tell you what does have a tail, and that is the Comet 45P Weriton. 45P Weriton is at the moment around about magnitude 7 and brightening rapidly. We expect that the comet will get up to somewhere around about magnitude 4 later in December. Now, this sounds really bright. Magnitude 4 is a, a, is a dim but a reasonably bright star. If it was a star, you'd see it reasonably easily. So it'd be about as bright as Gamma Crucis, the fifth star in the Southern Cross. So it'd be about, about as bright as Gamma Crucis. But the problem is, is it's an extended comet. So it's going to be very fuzzy and it's going to be very hard to see for us in a suburban dwellers. So you have to um, move out to the dark skies uh, sites to see and see it in, uh, with any degree of certainty. Uh, now, at the moment, it's moving through the constellation of Fornax the first, and then it will move into uh, Eridanus, the, uh, the river, over the coming weeks. So it's starting, to, it's, it, it's starting to move very fast and will move very rapidly from day to day, brightening as it goes. Put together a spotter's map for the comet very shortly so that people will be able to follow it with binoculars. It's definitely bright enough to see in binoculars at the moment and should evolve very rapidly. Even if it doesn't become bright enough to see in the suburbs, it will be certainly be a quite a nice little comet in binoculars in the suburbs. And if you've got a halfway decent telescope for astrophotography, it's beginning to show a nice little tail now. So you may not be able to see the tail in binoculars or uh, small telescopes. You'll probably just see a fuzzy blob. But certainly in higher-end telescopes or in in long long exposure astrophotography, you'll be able to see a nice little tail. And some of the photographs I've been seeing coming uh, now have been very nice indeed. Very good. 46p, something to look forward to, and for people to go to Ian's Astroblogger website to see the sky map for it. Yeah, put that up later on this week. Very good, Ian. And do you have a tangent for us? The, the tangent is another comet. So we've seen uh, an unexpected comet which is going to come close to the Parker Solar Probe. But what if a comet was a solar probe? You may remember the wayward asteroid rejoicing in the almost unpronounceable name of... Oumuamua. I can't pronounce it. <laughs> O-U-M-U-A-M-U-A. So we thought that this was an asteroid. If I remind everybody that uh, this uh, object was picked up after it had passed close to the sun, and we picked it up heading out of the, uh, the solar system, going through its orbit... It, uh, and its speed, it was determined this object came from outside the solar system. Yep. And now they've got more, some pre-recovery images. So it's firmed up the orbit and it's definitely an uh, a interstellar object. It's very unusual. It's uh, long and thin, uh, cigar-shaped. So this is unusual, but it's not entirely unusual. We've got the odd cigar-shaped asteroid lurking around our solar system as well. There is a story going around that it's an alien probe with a skin one millimetre thick. Ian, would you like to comment on that? 
Yeah. Well, I was going to get back to that in a moment because one of the things that they noticed when uh, following its orbit was that it speeded up. Now, we've talked in a previous podcasts about the, some of these non-gravitational effects that can cause, for example, changes in rotation speed due to the differential pressure of sunlight. Yep. But speeding up and changing orbit in this, in this short period of time is quite unusual. Now, one of the things that can happen is uh, comets can outgas and cause change trajectory and speed due to the outgassing. The early pictures we had of it uh, didn't show any coma or tail, but it's quite possible that this is a relatively exhausted uh, comet, comet slash asteroid where most of the volatiles have gone, but it was enough still there to move and accelerate the object, even though we couldn't pick up a decent coma. So that's the leading theory at the moment, is it's a sort of comet, a bit like the, the, the inverted commas main uh, belt comets, which are thought to be their asteroid light, but they can show uh, coma un under very um, special circumstances like perihelion, and they're thought to be depleted comets that have been captured in the main belt. So this was the theory, and then a group from Harvard suggested that it may be an alien probe, and specifically a solar sail. And what they thought was that the speeding up was consistent with the white sail catching photons and speeding up the, the object. And now, while this is very nice, there's a couple of issues with it. One is light sails to work are usually incredibly reflective. And it would be a, a light sail would be a lot brighter than Umama Maumau's dark surface. And the other thing is we have an aphorism in, in uh, our, our medical uh, biology uh, is that for diagnosis, uh, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting idea uh, and is one of the possible reasons this thing could be speeding up. But we have lots of examples of, or enough examples of strangely shaped objects in the solar system and main belt comets to think that a far more prosaic reason for the object speeding up rather than having to go all the way to aliens. Thank you very much, Ian. Now, could I quote you and say, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. You can. I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been fabulous talking with you again. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's great to, uh, to chat and uh, brightens up a Sunday evening, along with the crickets. <laughs> we, won't, we won't forget the crickets. Very good. We'll talk <laughs> to you again in two weeks. No worries. See you then. Cheers. Bye. And we close this episode with our news roundup. And our first report is via... Nicholas Kachel on the CSIRO blog. The small Magellanic cloud, the SMC, is slowly dying. The SMC, named after famous Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan, is about 200,000 light years away and one of the furthest object viewable in our skies with the naked eye. A quick tangent here if you live in the southern hemisphere, you can see the small Magellanic cloud easily. Step outside between 9 and 10pm this week, face south and look up high, about 50 degrees above the horizon or two extended handspans from thumb to little finger. 
you'll spot the large Magellanic Cloud easily, but if you're in a light-polluted urban neighbourhood, you should be able to find the large Magellanic Cloud first, then squint and look a little higher and to the right to find the SMC. Now, back to the CSIRO blog. Australian National University, the ANU, and a CSIRO team have used their powerful Australian SKA Pathfinder ASCAP radio telescope to capture images of the dwarf galaxy, the SMC, observing a powerful outflowing of hydrogen gas from it. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe and is the main ingredient of stars, but for every sun-sized star that the SMC makes, it loses up to 10 times that amount of this star-forming gas due to its comparatively weaker gravitational fields. If the SMC loses all its hydrogen, it will eventually lose its ability to create new stars, slowly but surely fading into oblivion. And it's not all doom and gloom. This observation has helped confirm simulations developed by theorists on how small galaxies like the SMC might evolve. Lead researcher Professor Naomi McClure-Griffiths from the ANU said the discovery, which is part of a project that investigates the evolution of galaxies, provides the first clear observational measurement of the amount of gas lost from a dwarf galaxy. The result is also important because it provides a possible source of gas for the enormous Magellanic stream which encircles the Milky Way, she said. CSIRO co-researcher Dr David McConnell said ASCAP was unrivaled in the world for this kind of research due to its unique radio receivers that give it a panoramic view of the sky. The telescope covered the entire SMC galaxy in a single shot and photographed its hydrogen gas with unprecedented detail, he said. Astronomers expect the SMC will ultimately be gobbled up by our own Milky Way. Thankfully, this process will take billions of years. For those who can get past the Nature Astronomy paywall, the original journal article is at tinyearl.com forward slash LMC dies. That's L-M-C-D-I-E-S, all lowercase, all one word. Our next news item is from the Chinese Academy of Sciences newsroom. China's artificial sun achieves major breakthrough. China's artificial sun has for the first time achieved a plasma central electron temperature of 100 million degrees Celsius or centigrade, marking a key step in China's future fusion reactor experiment, according to the Hefel Institute of Physical Science under the Chinese Academy of Sciences. The Experimental Advanced Superconducting Tokamak East in Hefel, East China's Anhui province, has been dubbed as artificial sun since it replicates the energy-generating processes of the sun. In stable fusion, 
a temperature of 100 million degrees is one of the most fundamental elements because fusion is possible only if the central temperature reaches 100 million degrees. The experimental data obtained establishes an important foundation for the development of clean fusion energy. Nuclear fusion needs very high temperatures and great pressure, and since that pressure can't be achieved here on Earth, people can only raise the temperature to get the same conditions, which, according to current theory, must reach at least 100 million degrees centigrade. Therefore, the Chinese artificial sun's successful achievement of 100 million degrees can be said to reach the ignition condition of nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is arguably the best way for human beings to get energy. In terms of raw materials, deuterium and tritium required for nuclear fusion are almost inexhaustible in the ocean. Besides, nuclear fusion does not produce any radioactive waste, so it's extremely environmentally friendly. China independently designed and constructed the East in 2006. The facility is 11 metres tall, with a diameter of 8 metres and a weight of 400 tonnes. Finally, with Opportunity Not Phoning Home from Mars, I've just booked another interview for early next year with Richard Stevenson, who leads the control room at Australia's DSN station at Tidbinbilla. NASA has three Deep Space Network, or DSN, stations, one at Tidbinbilla in Australia, managed by the CSIRO, one at Madrid, and one at Goldston in California. Sighted about 120 degrees apart, so NASA can schedule contact with missions throughout the day and night as the Earth rotates. For new listeners who didn't hear our first interview about operations at the DSN with Richard, go to tinyearl.com forward slash Richard NASA, all lowercase, all one word. It's a fabulous episode called Talking to Spacecraft. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!